Hey friends, thanks so much for tuning into the Inner Revolution podcast. Are you ready to be changed? Well, let's go. So good to have my good friend Jack Wheatley, Pastor Jack Wheatley, back with us on the Inner Revolution podcast. These last two casts have been very enlightening, eye-opening, and I want to call this cast today History's Wake-Up Call. And I don't know about you, just uh, we're grieved uh, before the Lord just in the dismantling of what's going on as far as freedoms in our nation, but also see a silver lining of an opportunity to share and demonstrate our faith like never before. And I'm just so glad to have Pastor Jack Wheatley again with us from Chicago. Uh, You know, as we've said, he's a fervent pastor, leader family man, dad, and just really a uh, the tip of the spear as far as uh, just really encouraging people, discipling people in their faith. And I love his perspective on history. So I hope you've been loving this and drop us a, drop us a line, drop us a text or drop us a, a note saying what you like about these casts because it means a lot. So, hey, Jack, great to have you, sir. And I'm going to let you roll with it here on History's Wake Up Call. All right. So the, the title is is very appropriate for today's uh, podcast and conversation in that um, Pastor Jason asked me, so how did you even get interested in history? And I can remember there was a seminal uh, time frame in my life where uh, I realized how much of a clown I was. And um I guess I have to give a, an ode to Rush Limbaugh of sorts here because, you know, I did grow up uh, in the back seat and my dad would be listening to this guy that was pretty boisterous, uh, pretty sure of himself, had some uh, off-color jokes or some really good jokes and maybe he had some wisdom too. But, you know, since my dad was talking or, or listening to this guy talk and there was a day that I thought I could have a conversation with my dad about politics and my dad had, um, this is right about the high school time frame. And uh, my dad used to have a, a particular colorful moniker for uh, people of the opposite political persuasion, much akin to uh, um, like clowns. And so I thought I, I'd use his moniker. And I said, dad, I can't believe those literal clowns and what they're doing. And my dad looked at me and he just laughed at me because I, all these times listening to the word liberal, I heard literal. And so I completely used the wrong term. And my dad's like, do you even know what you're listening to? So that kind of put me on, uh, you know, I was maybe just a dumb jock. Finally, you had the opportunity to play high school football. And now here I am, like, I don't even know what I'm talking about. So I got um, the book, The Way Things Ought to Be. That was a book from Rush Limbaugh. And I figured I should, I should read a book, you know, and um, <clears throat> I had a I started carrying it around, maybe, you know, like maybe how some Christians carry their Bible, but then they don't read it. (laughs) But I was actually carrying this book even around at school, and I did want to read it. And um, 
see, there was a lot of things happening right around that 91, 92 time frame. You know, I, I remember, you know, just having passed um, Black History Month, you know, Clarence Thomas is an amazing uh, man of, of faith, an amazing man of history. And right around that same time frame, he was also going through his confirmation hearings, you know, and you talk about maybe just becoming a, a, a prescient being really and trying to figure out what all the news is and what it means. I mean, I can remember them, uh, the, the Democrats, uh, I don't remember, you know, all these people just asking him like these questions, like there was such an attack and like a, an assassination of his character was attempted when they were, you know, they tried to use the, the stereotype that he was like a, you know, the, this racist stereotype, an uncontrollable uh, black man has this huge sexual appetite and he wants like ladies to think his member is much akin to a thoroughbreds, right? That's even like what Anita Hill was like speaking about. And I was like, what is like going on here? Like he, he called them out. He was being attacked and he's like saying, this is a high tech lynching of a black man who dared to think for himself or act for himself. And I was, um, I was really taken aback at like what was happening. And so this kind of just delved me into this, this book even more. And I was at um, my, in my English class, right? So you're, you're in English, English class, literary class, they're supposed to teach you to read books and to think for yourself, right? So we're having these conversations about what's happening in the news, we're reading books even, or maybe this, yeah. And um, <clears throat> after class, the, my English professor comes to me, he sees the book that I'm reading and he asks me and he tries to counsel me, like, don't read that book. That's not a good book to read. And I looked at him and, hey, I, you know, maybe I was a young punk, but I, I had a good counter. It was like I, I said, I thought you as a teacher were here to train me to critically evaluate the veracity of literary works. Right. Like I should be able to read this and evaluate the reading on its own merits and decide whether or not to read this book. And, you know, the, the professor, much like the people on the TV, how they were starting to insult Clarence Thomas, he started to insult first Rush Limbaugh, who, you know, I'd been listening to with my dad and I guess not really having everything sink in, right? Because I thought liberal was literal, so I had a lot to learn. But then he also was accusing me and trying to project on me, this is like the early 1990s, that I should feel guilty because I'm a white man. And that I should not read books by like this type of person that would want to perpetuate this, you know, like white supremacy or whatever it was. So like, you know, what, what happened last year or maybe being a little bit out of pocket with like what's happening in history and do we want to like have these 
insulting monikers for people that we don't agree with. That's what I received from, from the professor. So here I have to now sort out what's happening with this guy, Clarence Thomas, what sort out what's happening uh, with my English professor. He's trying to tell me not to read a book when isn't the whole point that he's telling that I should want to read books and he wants me to read books. And then he is saying that me and my family and my family's history, we should feel guilty about who we are. And so that's really, Pastor Jason, what, 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 what started off the, this whole um, pathway of can I really sort out the issues of what truly happened in the history of America and put it in the correct context, right? Because, you know, um, all of history is the story of how depraved the mind of man actually is. And uh, sorting out what the depravity of man, when it is um, releases itself to be renewed by the spirit of God, that's when you have great things happen in, in history. And, um, you know, I don't remember exactly what book that I was reading at that time that helped me find a context of like why I could be thankful for being an American, why I could be thankful for being a Christian. But I, I'm pretty sure it was probably a book from Thomas Sowell. And one book that I'm reading now from Thomas Sowell is Black Rednecks and White Liberals. And um, I, I love this uh, quote, right? So what the accusation was is I should feel guilty because I was white and I enslaved people. And <clears throat> on page 113 of Thomas Sowell's book, he says that, um, what does he say? Uh, look, look, look at this. So he says, uh, most of the history of the human race, slavery was not largely not the enslavement of racially different people for the simple reason that only in recent centuries has either the technology or the wealth existed to go to other continents to get slaves and to transport them. So really what he's saying is that the accusation from my English professor was like, because you're white, you're evil because you enslaved. And that quote there is saying that most of the time, People were enslaving their own people. And like slavery isn't like something that has, uh, it's been here from the, the, the dawn of time, right? We read it in the Old Testament. And he even says that, um, he says, we may wonder, I, I love this. He says, um, the hard fact is, he writes on uh, page 116, is that for thousands of years, slavery was simply not an issue at all, like morally for thousands of years, even among the great religious thinkers or moral philosophers of civilizations around the world. Then he writes, we may wonder why it took 18 centuries after the Sermon on the Mount for Christians to develop an anti-slavery movement 
But a more profound question is why not even the leading moralists in other civilizations rejected slavery at all. There's no evidence, according to a scholarly study by Martin Klein, that slavery came under serious attack in any part of the world before the 18th century. So even under Christianity, the first 1,800 years of history, we just let slavery happen. But really, when you take a look at it, it's when that uh, grounding, even in the Bible, that we are all of one blood, as it says in Acts 17, that then you would have uh, the writings of, of Blackstone or Montesquieu uh, in, in France, and then you would have in 1776 that the first in a, in a governmental document, the proclamation of all men being created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. So like this whole studying that just like enlightened me that I have a lot to learn. I think we all do, Pastor Jack. Again, I think that uh, there's so many moving parts, but I, I think one great difference in our history that we're not really seeing today in the forefront anyway is that the Bible was the center. So, of course, when man is at the center, they're going to look at the color of someone's skin. When God looks at the heart, he looks at the content uh, of the heart, you know, and again, you know, <laughs> What your professor said, it's it's almost like why there was uh, all these, uh, the dark ages between the Old and New Testament is because there was not an encouragement to read. There was not an encouragement to study. It was not an encouragement and even an, Ill, an illiteracy too. So I think today, wouldn't you say that there's such an illiteracy in history because, you know, they say this and, and maybe com comment on this. They say that the winners write history. That's one of the accusations of history. Oh, the winners have written history. Uh, that can be true. Uh, I don't know how much of an objective statement that could be, but really in, in, in history, God has given us uh, this privilege for the propagation and demonstration of the gospel. Uh, what do you think of that line there? You know, only the winner writes history. Right. So it's... Um... That it, yeah, to the, to the victor goes the spoils, right? And then because the victor has the spoils and now he has the power, then he can write or create the narrative of what was it that was the content of the battle. And <clears throat> that is, you know, a very interesting concept. But, you know, even if we look at today, right, we would say that, um, there are many different spectrums or perspectives, like spectrums of thought and then perspectives of how to view the past. And really, many people have a motivation about why they are framing the details of history the way that they are in their writings or their testimonies, right? So, you know, someone that loves and respects the history of the United States, maybe they would be much more apt to want to paint a positive light on the events of history. And then someone that is an, an anarchist, 
and there's someone that's trying to tear apart his, uh, the America, that they would seek to drive a wedge uh, in the people that are in the country, and then they would create a narrative to cause disunity in the country, right? So there's people write history with different motivations. And so that's why for the reader, as we went back in the, in the first podcast, two podcasts ago, about the, the importance of, of evaluating uh, the author himself and where he studied and what he's doing. Uh, did someone fund the book? Or where does he currently um, uh, work at? And then additionally, his bibliography. Like uh, what, how annotated is his bibliography? How many uh, source documents did he use? Did he use contemporary uh, to his time period, uh, periodicals from his time period or to the time period that he's writing about or some period in between, right? Because just as we play the telephone game, each iteration loses uh, um, detail, right? Perhaps in the passing of time, you could find a much uh, grander point of, of view to look at um, the actual events. So you could look at them more globally, but a lot of times this iteration and getting apart from the actual events, then you have this thing where you are evaluating men 200 years, 300 years ago by what your morality is and what your understanding is, you know, like uh, it was only 200 years prior to um, the founding of the nation to where people were really only getting exposed uh, through commerce in, in a large way. Uh, to, to different ethnicities, right? So people were even just trying to learn how do we communicate to each other? There were different languages. Uh, the, the, the practices and norms were completely different, you know? So uh, that's one of the great things of Thomas Sowell and his book, The Black Rednecks and White Liberals, is he, he goes through and even speaks about, and this is what I like, Thomas Sowell happens to be an African-American. So African-Americans talking about the history of slavery, and then you see like, what are his annotations and where does he draw his history from, right? So he, he has a good spectrum of, of time periods that he draws in his bibliography. And then, you know, he's at Stanford University, part of the Hoover Institute. So, you know, and he's an economist, economists, that's a much more grounded uh, field of thought in terms of uh, evaluating empirical uh, evidence versus like political science or some other you know, anthropological uh, field of study where you're kind of like in the humanities that it's not grounded in, in like facts as much. So hopefully he would have a more um, balanced perspective, right? And then he explains just how difficult it was even just for people to understand what do we do to be in uh, like a country or a society together um, with different races existing in that, right? So in the 1700s, they didn't even know if that was like 
really possible. Someone have to learn a language. They have they had a lot of different barriers. So um, yeah, well, you that kind of like talks a lot about you know to the victor goes the spoils. Like so, who is who's putting this whole spin on what was the very uh, uh, formation of the country? And why, and then who's the victor, right? So yeah. does that victor in America come every at every election, <laughs> right? So that's that's something, or is it the people that are the talking heads that have like the main uh, disseminating information disseminating channels, right? So we would say back in the day it was newspapers and radio. Now it's TV and social media platforms. Yeah, I mean, the media is definitely playing a huge role as far as communication, education, re-education, I should say. But, you know, just in our closing moments, Pastor Jack, I, I just uh, I remember visiting a, a, a town recently outside of Frederick called Middleton. And it's always amazing in these old towns, because uh, as we were entering the town, there was this gigantic church. And it's amazing how back in the day uh cities or towns were built around churches and that certainly has changed today and that's why we're talking about a wake-up call because honestly our liberties are being uh given away for our securities as lutzer talks about but you know think about back to two 200 years ago like churches were a mainstay the bible was a necessary document uh the words of God were important as far as making laws and uh, and understanding the, the value and significance of human life. But uh, just in wake up, I just think, you know, as a wake up call, I feel like the need not only as pastors and leaders, but just as citizens, not only not to be ignorant, but to be educators of of God's work in history. I think of history as his story you know and maybe in the closing moments here and these casts seem to go by so quick um talk to me about ways that you're keeping history alive for your family and the wake-up call what are you going to do with this wake-up call because we have the equality act that just got passed that disastrous uh it, i didn't want to know i don't even know if you want to call it a bill but that's going to unravel a lot of things as far as spiritual freedoms and rights and things but how are you raising your family and how are you uh, quickened to uh, keep history, uh, you know, accurate and or God centered, if we could say? Sure. Yeah. So much akin to my own enlightenment and understanding uh, my own place in history was done through an examination of the historical record, through examining books, um, when my first child and my namesake, Jack True Wheatley IV, was born, I had started reading these uh, leaders and action series books that are, you know, it's not like an 800-page book, right? Like this black... Uh, Black rednecks and white liberals. I mean, this is like a 400 page book, right? And so you're kind of like, here, here, uh, son, you're in seventh grade here, read a four or 500 page book. Like that's not happening. <laughs> uh, 
you know, and, and Theodore Roosevelt, uh, you know, one of the great things, you know, many great things that he did, uh, but one of the great things that he always did was as much as he could, he taught fifth grade Sunday school, even at his uh, home church, even when he, if he was a governor, uh, president, retired, all these different things. He believed that this seminal moment uh, in maturation of the mind was fifth grade, like to like graduation of high school, but getting them in the fifth grade. So at that time, I got these little pocket books for my son, uh, but then also for me too, they were an awesome resource um, just to encourage him to read people of history. You know, going back to Thomas Sowell, he, he put squarely that the eradication of an institution that had been from the dawn of man was eradicated in under a hundred years after the foundation of America. Because America, as we talked about prior, like the first time that an ideal was the governing foundation of a nation. And that governing foundation was that God created us and then he gifted us from his beneficence with uh, characteristics that we could not separate from our constitution, from our human experience. We couldn't separate life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And so that just cascaded a whole sequence of events that had up to that point not even been experienced in terms of men coming to account with truth. And so um, <clears throat> we can be assured that as Christians, the reason why we have let all these different spirits and maladies and psychological um, ills into our um, country, Pastor, our founder, Pastor Carl Stevens would call them uh, humanistic barbiturates is the phrase that he used. But um, it's because though they came through the church first, we didn't address them and we allowed them to enter in. That's why in Second Chronicles 7, it says, if my people who are called by my name will repent of their sins, then I will heal the land. So it's incumbent upon Christians, all the answers of today's ills are most certainly in the book for the, the sanctity of life. Uh, Psalms 139 has the very uh, scientific uh, grounding that God understood that each person and their life was irrepeatable and that he had the whole understanding of all of their DNA before they went from 64 cells to 128 cells. It actually says that in Psalms 139. And then for us, for like our races, like we said, Acts 17, he made of all men out of one blood, scientifically verifiable. That goes back to the very creation story in Genesis chapter one formed by the very dust of the earth. Everything else called into existence, man formed from the dust of the earth. And we are, uh, when you take a, like a spectrometer and you see what man is made out of, 
we are made out of the very elements that are in clay. So that uh, what is expressed in uh, Genesis 1, 16 through 18, chapter 2, right in the first parts of the verse there, forming us out of the clay, it has been, um, um, it has been uh, verified by scientific inquiry. So that's, we, we've, we stand solidly and we can proclaim truth. Amen. The receipts of history, as you say, you know, uh, I've been loving these casts and, you know, I've heard one writer say this, that our, our society is not a reflection of government, but it's the reflection of the church. And I agree with that, that in this day and age we're living in, uh, a lot of churches are in a great struggle. And one pastor recently said this to me, a lighthouse does not shut off its light in the storm. And I feel like that's happened with churches being closed or backing off of different institutions. And that is what it is. But the foundation of history in God's eyes is the Bible. I mean, you just mentioned several things. I mean, you see the whole um, from Job 37 through 40, the meteorology and uh, all of the, the issues with <clears throat> earth and we're definitely not, we definitely don't believe in a flat earth because that's the most ridiculous concept on the planet, just like evolution. Uh, we see these things uh, absolutely communicated in the book of Isaiah, Job, and Genesis. But boy, we could keep going on here, but uh, what a joy, Pastor Jack, to clearly demonstrate and communicate the heart of God in these days as men are lovers of themselves and uh, their deception <clears throat> will grow and grow because when we're at the center, um, you know, we lose logic, we lose reason, and we're certainly in an unreasonable time. Yeah, so the health, hey, of, hey, a nation, yeah. the health yeah. of a nation is the pulpit. So keep preaching there in Chicagoland. The health of a nation, it's its pulpit. Amen. Amen. Yeah, when Theodore Roosevelt wrote his book, Winning the West, uh, he wrote that there was a, a direct positive correlation, almost perfect, that if a church was founded in a, a, a new town in the West, and then the church grew, then the town grew, and the town was healthy. But if there was no church, or the church went by the wayside, then so did the town. And uh, last night, talking uh, with, with Pastor Schaller, uh, we were just encouraging one another when I used the quote from Teddy Roosevelt. He said, weasel words from Molly Coddles will never do when the day demands prophetic clarity from great hearts. Manly men must emerge for this hour of trial. And so we say as we end, men, man up, emerge, love strong, have mercy, and uh, walk humbly with your God. Yes, and just to add, Mother Teresa, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. In truth. Amen. <laughs> hey, love you, Pastor Jack. It's a joy to have you, and we'll talk to you soon. Amen. See you next week at Eurocon. Thanks, friends, for joining us for another episode of the Inner Revolution podcast. Please find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode.